0: church you can go and have a seat that song is drawn from psalm 46 and I like, think it's just such a marvelous thing that the lord gives us songs like that songs for the saints to sing in this world where we do have trouble as jesus said we would where we are hard pressed where we are shaken uh, to sing uh, to sing our faith and our trust and where our our shelter is it's the Lord's uh, mercy and grace to us to give us to give us such things. If you guys would open your Bibles up to Matthew 6, we are in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount. If you are joining us, we're about halfway through. And eventually we will finish it. We're taking our time. It's a rich, rich uh, text from our Lord and Savior. So Matthew 6, we're going to be in verses 19 through 21 this morning. I'm going to go ahead and read that. And we'll pray for the Lord's help. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Lord, we thank you for your word. We confess this morning that we need it. Uh, We have been preached to all week by our flesh, by the world, by the evil spiritual forces that want to rob you of your glory, and we need uh, your revelation, your truth to reorient us uh, to the true nature of things, to where our affections truly ought to lie, to what we truly ought to pursue. And so, Lord, we ask for your help this morning. We ask that your word would go forth truly, faithfully, that you guard it from error. Lord, we pray for our hearts as we receive it, that you would soften them and that your spirit would apply it to each one of us uh, doing the work that we need. Where we need comfort, I pray that you would bring it. Where we need conviction, I pray that you would bring it. Uh, Lord, thank you that we can trust you to care well for your people. And we leave this in your hands in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, church, this passage, uh, we have the words of Jesus here, and he's answering one particular question that touches really every aspect of our lives. And that question is, how do citizens of the kingdom of heaven live in this world? How do the citizens of the kingdom of heaven live in this world? Christians, we live in a tension. When we were saved, when Christ regenerated us, gave us life, gave us the gift of faith, caused us to trust Christ, and we were united in by faith, a whole bunch of things happened. We were brought to spiritual life. We were adopted into God's family. But one of the things that Scripture tells us happened is that our citizenship is transferred. It is transferred from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven That's where our true home is now. And yet we're here, right? If you have done that, if you place your trust in Christ, you didn't move, you weren't transported somewhere else, there wasn't some kind of weird alien abduction thing going on, no, you're still right here. So your citizenship has moved, but you are here. And because of that, your relationship to this world where you still live has shifted and changed. And so has your relationship to the world and the life to come. And there's a tension involved in this. And because there's a tension involved in this, because we live in a way between two realities, an old one and a new one, there is a tendency to get this wrong. right? To either under-realize what has been done for us and to live a life that is lived wholly under the sun, that is wholly involved in just in this life, and to disregard what has happened? Well, there's another problem, though, is to see this transfer of citizenship and to think it somehow has taken us out of here so we can now ignore this place or what we do here does not matter. And those are both errors. And what Jesus does in, in answering this question is he is going to properly orient us to the way we live in this world and the way we relate to the kingdom where our citizenship now resides. And this changes everything about the way we do our life in this world and ultimately what we're going to see is that that what Jesus says happened when we became his when that citizenship was moved is that we were freed from the bondage of this world we were freed from having to have this world be enough for us and we were free instead To have this world be what it is meant to be, to relate to it the right way is something that ultimately we steward for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. So let's look and see what that means as we dive into the text. First, we've got to talk about laying up treasure. When I hear treasure, the first thing I think is pirates— probably because I'm juvenile, right? But that's just treasure equals pirates for me. But then once I get past that, I think treasure equals money, right? That's that's my next place I go, treasure equals money. And that gets us a little closer to what Jesus is talking about, but it still doesn't get us all the way there because the treasure that Jesus is talking about here, money is part of it, but it's just part of it, right? What Jesus is talking about here is really, when he's talking about your treasure, he's talking about all that you have and are. All that you have and are. He's talking about, yes, your money. He's talking about your time, your skills and talents, your attention, your affections. He's talking about everything that you do and what makes you who you are. so that's what he's talking about treasure it's it's you all of you that's what he's speaking about and then he talks about laying up what does laying up mean i think the closest way to understand it is to think about investing investing that's the idea one definition i found is that investing is the act or process of expending resources to achieve rewards expending resources to achieve rewards So what Jesus is talking about, when he's talking about this laying up of treasures, he's talking about where do you invest yourself for a return? Where do you pour out yourself? Where it delivers. And what undergirds this is a reality about who we are as human beings that Jesus recognizes and assumes here. Is that you, by virtue of being human, you are always expending yourself. Every second you are alive, you are giving of yourself to something. You are giving your time, your attention, your focus, your resources. You are always pouring yourself out to some end. Like a faucet that got turned on and then the handle got broken off, right? And that thing is going to run until you die. You are going to be spending yourself to some purpose. To some purpose. The question is, is what you are spending yourself on, is it worth it? Can it deliver? Because we know investing isn't just the answer. What you invest in makes all the difference in the world. If you invested $1,000 in Amazon stock in 1997 when it went to IPO, you would have about $1.8 million right now if you just never touched it. right, we'd be doing pretty well if we had figured that out back then. Don't think any of us did though, so here we are. All right, but if you'd taken that same money the same year and invested it into one of Amazon's early rivals, eToys, you would currently have zero dollars because eToys no longer exists. It went bankrupt just a couple years later. Same investment, totally different outcomes. What you invest in matters, not all returns are equal. And we can say that for the stock market and that's all, you know, we get a chuckle, whatever, the dot-com bubble. But we're talking about your life here. We are talking about you are spending yourself on something. Every day you are awake, you are investing yourself in something. We're not just talking about losing five bucks on a bet or a stock. We're talking about your life. Your one life that you have is being spent somewhere. Is what is being spent on? Will it deliver? Can it deliver? Can it bear up under the weight of having your hope, your trust resting on it? That's the question at hand. Jesus knows this about us. He knows that we are spending ourselves, He created us, He knows how He designed us to function as human beings. Right? And the design of this was that we were meant to pour ourselves out to God. Right? This is why we were made. We were meant to pour ourselves out to God, to have everything expended towards him and indirectly towards him by honoring his command to love our neighbors, the people he puts around us. That's the way it was designed. And you know what? He holds up under the weight. You are made in his image. That is the way you were designed to function and to thrive, was by pouring yourself. This is this pouring out. This is another good way to describe worship. Right? That's what I'm talking about, worship. Giving yourself over to him. When you do that to God, he holds up. He will not disappoint. He cannot disappoint. That's what you were designed for. But the flip side of that is nothing else does nothing else does. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he talks about not laying up your treasures here on earth. We have a great example right in Scripture of what this looks like. Really, a whole book. Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes is, I could just read it now, and it would paint this picture out for you beautifully. Ecclesiastes, the book's also called Kohelet. That's the name the Hebrew word for teacher. And it's presented from Solomon's perspective. And this teacher is exploring in his own words life under the sun. What is good for me to do under the sun? What is good for me to expend myself for? What is good for me to give myself to? What pays off? But this under the sun idea is very operative because largely Except for a couple little points, he is really doing it almost with a kind of a deistic sort of perspective. He he knows God's there, but he is not really taking him into, into account of the way he's engaging the world. He is pouring himself out after different things to see what will hold weight. And the beautiful thing about God giving us Ecclesiastes is that he uniquely positioned this teacher to be able to do this in a way that almost none of us get to. Right? This guy had resources. He's like, oh, you think, you know, you think houses will do it for you? He can get all the houses. You know, he doesn't get to live in the illusion. Like, ah, I just didn't have enough money to get. If I had gotten the right one, it would have worked. He gets everything. And he tries it in all sorts of avenues. He pursues wealth. Just gets so rich. Right? That doesn't work, though. He pursues pleasure. Again, to degrees that we cannot, we don't even have access to. Again, it doesn't work. Wisdom, knowledge, he pursues that. Same thing, doesn't work. Accomplishment, he accomplishes incredible things. Becomes incredibly famous. Again, it doesn't work. And there's this refrain over and over and over again in the book. Vanity of vanities. That word is... is, Essentially, vapor, right? Something that's elusive, that you can't hold on to, that just dissipates so quickly. That's what he's saying. All this stuff was—I got it all, and it was just like it was like trying to grab smoke. It was that futile. Right. Here's just one example of the futility he found in Ecclesiastes 5:10. He says, "He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income." this also is vanity. That's just, that's all over the place. It's threaded throughout the book. We could add to the list things beyond what Ecclesiastes teaches. We could do this with power, right, with even something good like family. Right, all of these things Solomon went after were good. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. God created pleasure. God created wealth. It's good to build things. All the things, wisdom is good. These things were all good, but they were not good for what Solomon was trying to use them for. That's the problem. It was an abuse. It was a distortion of what they were made for. He was trying to put too much weight on them. They had to deliver. They had to be the thing that satisfied him. And they could not do it. The thing is we can pick anything, any created thing, and the answer will be the same. If we could exhaust it, if we had the resources and the time, if we could live forever and pursue these things, we could not get enough to be satisfied. We would end up devastated and despairing and crying out with Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities. This is futile. What is good to do here? Because created things cannot hold up to being your end, your, your purpose, your hope. If they are where your treasure is stored, if they are where you pour yourself out for, to to be okay, if they are the thing that you stake your everything on, they absolutely, 100% of the time, will fail you. And you will end up disillusioned. Just as he did. Jesus goes on to explain why this is the case, right? He doesn't just say don't do this. He goes on and talks about it. He says, Don't do this because moth and rust destroy. And he's pointing out the fact that the things of this world are corruptible and perishable. Right? You guys have stuff, I'm sure. And you know this is true. Right? If you've had a car, what do they do? Do they get better over time or worse? No. They slowly degrade. What happens with your house if you don't do anything to it? Does it get better or worse? It gets worse. My four-year-old daughter always asks me, Are we gonna get a new house? This one's old now. All right. Like she's she's cute. But this is the idea though, like all these things, they all you can watch the degradation, right? What happens with our bodies? I used to be 20, now I'm almost 40. Things have not gotten better. I am far more sore and achy than I used to be. Right? This world, under the curse of sin, is corruptible. Right? This is why Paul in Romans 8 says all of creation groans with longing to be delivered. The way this place is now is not good, everything breaks. Everything falls apart. Everything dies. So the things themselves, the things we would put our hope in, they fall apart. Empires rise and fade. Buildings are built and they fall into disrepair. Everything constantly falling apart. Right, But it's not just that they're corruptible in themselves. There's also external threats, right? Even if they were enough, you can't hold on to them, right? There are enemies who want to take them from you. Have you ever been ripped off? I hate that feeling. It makes me so mad. It it's definitely brings out my sin. I hate being taken advantage of like that, right? But people do it. People steal. People take advantage of other people. People manipulate you. Then you've got a story like we have in Scripture, a narrative of Job, right? It's not just people. Right? There's spiritual forces of darkness who also harm us. Right? Remember what Job lost? Everything. Everything he had. Except his life. Right? And even if we manage, right, to fend off all the thieves and the extortioners and we don't lose things through, you know, spiritual warfare, all that that stuff, we save that off, guess what? You're going to die. You're going to die. The the author of Ecclesiastes says this. He's like, even if I could keep it all, which I can't because people keep taking it and it keeps getting lost, even if I could, I'm going to die. And somebody's going to get to keep it and enjoy it. I don't even need to keep it. Vanity of vanities. You will lose your grip on everything of this world at one time or another. You can't even put your hope in Legacy. Right, that becomes a thing, right? That becomes the thing you chase once you start to realize you can't hold on to it all. Well, maybe people will remember me. I can build something that lasts. How many people are remembered <laughs> past their immediate family? Almost no one. So one of the things that the author of Ecclesiastes finds so grievous. He's like, I do all these things and in two generations, I'm going to be forgotten. Nobody's going to care. They're going to move on. They're going to be chasing their own stuff. They're not going to think about me. So ultimately, when we pour ourselves out into the things of this world as our hope, as our end, as the thing to satisfy us, we end up in the same place as the author of Ecclesiastes when he asks this. He says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? If we are seeing things rightly, right? If we get our, if we strip away the delusions and all the idealistic things we want to believe, this is where we end up. What is good to do if all this stuff is broken and I'm going to lose all of it? What is there good for me to do here? He even got to the point where he said, it would have been better if I hadn't been born. This place is so frustrating. So that's the question, what is good for man to do while he's here? If the world is not enough to bear the weight of our hope, if it can't provide a return when our lives are poured out into it, then what? C.S. Lewis was on the right track when he said, if we find ourselves with a desire nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And he's on the right track because he's echoing exactly where Jesus points us here in this passage That this place here and now is not enough It was not designed to be enough Before we go there I just want to answer one misconception really briefly Right because if this is the case does that mean what we do in the world doesn't matter Should we just become some kind of like new monastic people who just don't engage at all? It doesn't matter what we do with the things of this world. It's pointless. Is that what this means? Absolutely not. Definitively not. That is not what that means. We fall off into error if we say that. What Jesus is not doing is he's not denigrating our activity in the world here. He created us for this world to do things in it. But what he's doing is he's correcting the distortion right he's putting it in its proper place it's not that our engagement with the world is wrong or bad inherently it's the way we do it so it's when we replace the creator with the creature and other created things where the problem is so he's not saying this place doesn't matter just forget about it don't care don't engage that is not it at all our lives here are good and meaningful, and they matter. But here is not ultimate. That's what he's correcting, right? And when we understand that, we can recover the way we're supposed to engage here, the way that we can do the things we have to do here rightly, not as our end, not as our purpose, not as our hope, but in what they are meant for. And you can even hear this in the passage, right? When Jesus says, don't, Store up treasures in heaven. The next thing he says is, but do store up treasures here. Or don't store up treasures on earth. There. I knew I was going to switch it at one point. It was just like a little booby trap just waiting to get me. Right? Don't store up treasures in heaven. He says, do store up treasures in heaven. Right? So not on earth, but in heaven. The switch that happens is that we're not investing in this world, but we are doing the storing up while we're here. Right? The storing up doesn't end here. The storing up happens here somewhere else. And that starts to get us to where we need to be. So let's move on. Jesus says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Now when Jesus says heaven, a lot of times when we hear heaven, we get distorted pictures because of pop culture and everything. How many of you picture like clouds and little cupids with bows and arrows and that is completely not anything real just if you can just brain dump that completely right this is not what we're talking about when we talk about heaven three things when we hear heaven three things we should keep in mind in contrast to earth here right first of all we're talking about not this life but the next one right two different lives a life here on earth that is short and temporal a next life that is eternal, right? So two different lives. So when we talk about heaven, we're talking about not this life, but the life to come. With that as well, you'll, you'll see this language in scripture all the time, this present age and the age to come, right? So that's another distinction, right? This earth is associated with this present age, what we live in now. But scripture always talks about this age that is to come, when Jesus comes again, and everything is remade. There's an age to come. There's this fundamental shift. Right? Which comes, the third thing, is a new heavens and a new earth. Okay? Not floaty cloud land. Right? You're not going to be some ethereal spirit floating around playing a harp forever. That sounds horrible. And heaven is not horrible. Heaven is glorious and wonderful. So much to the point that when, when scripture describes it, it tells us all the things it's not, because that's kind of the only way you can describe it for our little creature brains to even be able to wrap our heads around. No death, no sorrow, no loss, no, nothing bad, nothing disappointing, all stripped away. We can't even begin to understand how rich this is, all right? So what scripture tells us, Second Peter uh, 3 is great for this. It tells us that after Christ saves everybody he's going to save, he's going to come, and heavens and earth are going to be, there's this very apocalyptic language of everything being overthrown by like, by fire. It's this picture of kind of refining, and there's this remade heavens and earth, this new one, where all the stuff that is broken and this one is done away with, it's stripped away, it's cleaned out, so there's this new heavens and new earth where everything that is unwell and not right is put to rights. So when we think about heaven, we need to think about these, these three things. When Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven, you need to think about, okay, in contrast to this life, a life to come that is going to go on forever versus this one where you get, you know, whatever, 70, 80 years, right? The age to come, not this present age and everything that marks it, but an age to come where Jesus Christ rules supremely and every knee bows to him. It's very, very different, like sharp break in this age and the age to come. And along with that comes this new heavens and new earth where all the vestiges of sin are stripped away. So when Jesus says, store up your treasures in heaven, he's talking about that, right? Rather than investing in the things that are going to last till you die, invest in things that will last forever. Instead of investing in this age now that is going to pass away, invest in the age to come that is going to be eternal rather than investing in this new heavens and new earth, in in this earth, invest in a new heavens and new earth that's coming. Right, if you're in a condemned house that's going to be bulldozed and they're gonna build a mansion on it, you're silly to paint the walls. That's the idea, right? Like There's going to be this new one to come. So you don't invest, you don't plant your roots here. You use this place to invest in what's coming. So practically what does that mean right I think that's a big question here like that sounds great so I don't have like a little vault that goes to heaven like what, what does that even mean how do I invest how do I lay up treasures in heaven well there's a very simple short answer but then that has a myriad of implications right well the place we go to to think about investing In the kingdom of heaven, is is thinking about what does God call us to? What does He require of us? God's moral law is holy and perfect and eternal. What was right was right before creation and it will be right into eternity because it is sourced in who God is Himself. And so, one of the things we look to, to look at what's going to mark the kingdom of heaven, is look at God's law. What does He say is right and good for us to do as people? We find this summarized in the Ten Commandments, right? And then summarized even further by Jesus, boiled down to two things. To love God supremely and love your neighbor as yourself. That is what it looks like to lay up treasures in heaven. Because these things carry forth. That apocalyptic language, the earth being remade, these things carry forth. The neighbors that you love are also going to be their image bearers of God, and they're going to live forever. Right? In eternity. In bliss or under the wrath of God. Right? But they carry on past this place. And God, of course, is eternal. So our love for Him, it, it carries on. and So that's what it boils down to, guys. It it's, can be as simple as that. It is loving God and loving our neighbor. That is what lasts beyond this place. Now, this means we're engaged in the affairs of the world just like anybody else would be. We're still going to work jobs. We're still going to go to school. We're going to grow or buy food and cook. Much of our lives looks very much the same. But we have a very different goal in mind as we do each of these things, right? Take, for instance, our you know, your work, right, if you, whether it's at home, whatever, there's lots of reasons you can do your work, right, you can do it for wealth, you can do it for fame, and accolades, right, that's all well and good, but that is what it looks like to invest in this world, to do that, to, to pursue wealth as the highest goal, or to pursue fame, or success as the highest goal, that's what it looks like to invest in this world. Well, what does it look like to do this, laying up your treasures in heaven? All right? This is where we take loving God and loving your neighbor and we translate it into the vocations God has given us. Right? So, you know what's a good way to invest in the kingdom of heaven? It is a good thing to love your closest neighbors, which are your family. It's a good thing to work well and provide for them. That is a good thing. And that feels very earthy, right? This isn't like real ethereal stuff. This is real life stuff but because that is something that god calls us to that is something that is not laying up treasures here that's laying up treasures in heaven because we are pursuing what he says is righteous it's good to work to have something to be generous with to those in need that's a good thing so do it it's a good thing to honor god through working diligently as unto the lord to to be honest to do good work for the sake of those that you are serving, to be diligent, to not be lazy. These are things that honor the Lord with your work. So again, this is not a hyper spirituality that's disconnected from your everyday stuff. This is just, it's imbued in everything that you do. The way that you cook meals, the way that you give the kids a bath, the way you go to school, all of these things get shaped like this. Think about family, right? Think about family, kids, your spouse, Right, there are different ways you can raise kids. Right, you can raise your kids to a lot of different ends. Right, you can raise your kids prioritizing your convenience, very selfishly. Right, or you can raise them for some sort of worldly success in sports or academics. It's not bad to do those things, but you can build your parenting around those things. That's investing in this world. But if we are investing in the kingdom, we would know that the primary thing we want to raise our kids towards is to knowing who God is and understanding the gospel, to raise them, to quote scripture, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we would orient and prioritize things to that end. That would be the ultimate pursuit. If my kids can't do anything else, but they get that, great, because this is the one thing I have to do everything I can to raise them around. To, to give to them. Same thing with marriage, right? You can do, pursue lots of different things in your marriage, right? You can prioritize travel, your, your career. You can do all sorts of things, you can, but your marriage has a direction. Right? You are paired up to pursue something, But what Scripture tells us is that what we get to do in marriage is that we get to picture the relationship between Christ and his church. We get to live out this picture of the gospel. And that is meant to be the primary orientation of our marriages. The, The most important thing for my marriage is that I, in a very broken and imperfect way, reflect Christ's love for the church to my wife. That is way more important than anything I get out of her, anything else we would accomplish together. That is the most important thing. It's not that the other things are bad. There's lots of other good things, and we will do them. But this is the North Star. This is the thing that our hope is in, right? This is how we, we measure. This is how we make decisions, right? Is what are we oriented toward? What are we moving our family towards? The things of this earth or the kingdom of heaven. Now, we invest... We lay up treasures in heaven for the exact opposite reasons, for the, the, the exact opposite side of the coin of why we don't do it here. Every problem that doing it here has goes away when we store up our treasures in heaven, right? Whereas the things here are corruptible, they're going to fade, they break down, they get sick and die. None of that happens in this kingdom of heaven where we're going. It's, the Scripture literally says it's incorruptible. There is no degradation, there is no curse. Nothing falls apart, nothing breaks, nothing gets sick, nothing dies. So it is not going to fail you that way. There are also no more enemies, right? When this age passes away and the age to come arrives, Jesus will put every enemy permanently under his feet. Satan will no longer be active. The last enemy to be defeated is death. Even death will be dead. There will be nothing from the outside that can steal or rob or take from you anymore so what you have there is certain and sure and secure so that's the forward-looking part of it right but there's one other thing there's another reason jesus says for why this is important why investing in the kingdom pays off and it has to do with now right it has to do with what it does in you now let so read verse 21 the last line he says here is, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, this is not a verse about getting to heaven, right? Sometimes we use heart, we talk about asking Jesus into your heart and we use language like that. So this, we can kind of tie this into that and get confused, right? This isn't saying if you invest in the kingdom of heaven in the ways I talked about, then you're gonna get there because your heart's gonna show up there. That's not what it is talking about. Remember, this sermon is being preached to Jesus' disciples who are in the kingdom. This is a sermon to the people who are in. Right? He's describing to them what citizens of the kingdom do, not how to get into it. It's really, really important because you'll screw up the whole Sermon on the Mount if you don't remember that. Right? What he's talking about is having our affections reordered. Right? One of the things... That has happened because of sin is that we love the wrong things in the wrong ways right we were made to love exactly the way i talked about love god supremely love his other image bearers as ourselves that's the way we were designed that's how we're supposed to function properly but in sin our loves are corrupted they're distorted we love things that aren't good for us to love we love things too much and we love things not enough It's all broken. We have disordered affections. This is one of the problems with sin. Romans 1 captures this when it talks about how we have swapped in our sin. We've swapped the creature for the creator. We started treating creatures as if they're God and God as if they're a creature. This weird inversion that completely throws everything off. Right? And we live in a world that basically tells you the opposite of this, right? We live in a world that one of the, you know, part of the ethos of our age is follow your heart. Right? Well, Scripture tells us that our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked to the point where we don't even understand it, right? It is so corrupted by sin. And after you're a Christian, this doesn't completely change. You're given a new heart. The Spirit indwells you, but the flesh is still there. The New is very clear about this. So things have started to become reordered, but it's not done. If you think it is, you probably need to rethink some things. Talk to somebody who knows you, and they'll, they'll hope you see that it's not a, not a finished project, right? I'm sure they can tell. You, people around me certainly can. Right? So there's, there's, Jesus is presenting an entirely different way of engaging this. Our world says, follow your heart. Do what your heart says. What you feel is good. Do it. And everybody better affirm you. Right? That's pretty much that fits. What scripture says is, is no. Jesus doesn't say, hey, where your heart is, put your treasure there. He says, no, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He doesn't say figure out what you feel like and then invest there. He says, no. Don't ask how I feel, ask what is good. What is good invest there pour yourself out there whether you feel it or not and what happens is your affections follow All right I don't know if you've if you've ever you know, this is a very very mundane example of this but if you've ever bought in stock right there can be a company you did not care about you didn't even know its name before but then once you own this little tiny bit of it you care a lot Right? You're like, oh, did it go up? Did it go down, right? Now you care about this thing you never cared about before because you are invested. You have skin in the game, right? And Jesus is saying what we pour ourselves into should not follow our hearts. That's foolish. That will lead to, to death and slavery. What he's saying is what you invest in is one of the things that God uses to train your heart, to train your loves, to love the right things. Our affections need to be reordered, and this is one of the ways that God does it. Right? So we don't start at our feelings. We don't start at what we, how we want things to be, and then do that. No, we start with, what has God said is good? What is good for me to do here? What is good for me to pour myself out into? Well, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> right? like Think about what, even what we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, love those who hate you. Pray for those who persecute you. Does that sound fun to anybody? It's not what I would have written down if I was writing this, right? That's not what I want to do. And yet that's what the citizens of the kingdom of heaven do. And Jesus says it's good for us to do. And so I have to trust what Jesus says about that, that this is a good thing for me in the long run. When we think about the age to come, the kingdom to come, the life to come, this is a good thing for me. As much as I don't like it as much as I don't feel like doing it all right so this flips the whole way our world functions and operates on its head Jesus says do it the other way the way you want to do it the way you want to follow your heart that leads to nothing good it only leads you to sin and death your heart is not a trustworthy guide you know what is God's revelation He designed this place. He determines what is right and wrong. When he tells you what is good for you, he knows, he made you, he designed you. It's not arbitrary. He's not some mean babysitter who just makes up rules to flex their power. No. He designed you and he's good. What he calls you to is good. So pursue what he says is good for you to pursue, whether your heart is there or not. And he says he'll shape your heart after what it should love through that that's one of the things he uses you know this in a lot of ways this very much shapes the way you know we think about corporate worship right we don't come here on sunday morning To do this, to sit under the preaching of God's word, to sing true songs about him to him and each other, to pray, to confess our sins together, to receive the Lord's Supper. We don't do those things when we feel like we need it, when we feel like it's good. It's not why we do it. We do it because God says he cares through his church through these things. And whether I feel like it or not, I'm going to trust what he says he does, and I'm going to show up. And even, you know, I stand up here and preach every week. My heart's not in the same place every week. I have weeks where I, I wish I could phone in sick, right? I do. Right? My flesh is still there. But I trust what he says. I trust that he cares for his people through the means of grace he's established. So I come not because my heart's perfectly aligned, but because my heart needs to be aligned, because I need to learn to love the things I should love. I should love to hear the gospel preached. I should love to sing and proclaim who he is. I should love to receive the Lord's love. I should love to confess. I should love all these things. And if I was perfect, I would love them deeply all the time. But I am not, and so I don't. And that's exactly why I need to be here. Do not gather for the Lord to care for you when you feel like you need it. Gather because he tells you you need it. Let the feelings follow, right? That's the orientation of the Christian life here in this world. If you follow what you feel like, it's going to be a mess, an absolute mess. All right. Let's wrap this up. I just want to, in closing, I want to make sure a couple of things are, are clear and that we're, we're hearing this the right way this call to not lay up treasures here, but to lay them up in the kingdom of heaven, this is not some kind of like burdensome duty laid upon you. Like, All right, church, get out. you better get out there and do this, or else, like I'm shaking a stick at you. know what, what Jesus is calling us to is, is freedom. Right? This is a call to freedom, to put your hope and your trust. To put it in the things of this world is not freedom, it is slavery, it is bondage, because those things cannot deliver for you. They absolutely are going to disappoint you. And apart from Jesus Christ, that is all you have. The only thing you have is under the sun. That's where everything stops. so if you are not in Christ, what you are going to do, whether you realize it or not, is that you are going to spend your life going from thing to thing to person, to thing, trying to find something that will satisfy you. You will. And one of two things is going to happen. You're going to either hit the bottom, crater out, and realize there's nothing there, or you're going to run out of time before you find that out. But what you won't find is an answer that works. What you won't find is something that you can pour yourself out into that can hold up it's not there this is part of the reason sin is called a a slavery and a death that we are born into it's not this like very obvious visible slavery of shackles and chains it's this very subtle slavery of not having access to the one thing that we actually need You can't store up treasures in heaven. You don't have access to that until you're a citizen. And there's only one way you become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that is by being joined to Jesus Christ by faith. You cannot earn this citizenship. You cannot do enough to earn the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus has done that. But the beautiful thing is that it's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom as a gift of grace The prerequisite for being a citizen of the kingdom is that you have to stop trusting in what you do that you have to stop trusting in what you can do to be good enough and that you have to throw yourself wholly on jesus his righteousness in place of your sin and his sacrifice for the sin that you've committed that's how you become a citizen and it's only then that you are freed from the deadly hamster wheel of pouring yourself out on things that are just going to kill you and destroy you and enslave you. But in Christ, but in Christ, church, you have been lifted over the sun. That that little canopy there that, that Ecclesiastes talks about all the time, it's gone, right? You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You have the right To invest in this place, a place that has no corruption, that has no enemies, where you will suffer no loss, where you live eternally. You get to spend this little, temporal, short life on things that will last forever. This is not some heavy-weighted duty. This is an incredible privilege that you have been given by virtue of the work of Jesus. You are no longer condemned to vanity and futility in this world, right? Your life in this world matters because you can do things that carry over into eternity now. You can now enjoy and engage in this world in the way that you're meant to, right? Not as your ultimate hope, but as good gifts from the Creator, to glorify Him for and to use for the good of those around you. You're now free to do that. And you know what? They're good. All all these things we talked about, they are good. Family is good. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with pleasure. These things are good. They're gifts from God. The problem is when they get abused. And in our sin, we only abuse them. But in Christ, they can be restored to their rightful place. The few little optimistic parts in Ecclesiastes are are when the teacher gets this a little bit. And he says, you know what's good for you to do? Be God's creature. Receive, do your work unto him. Receive your food and your drink as a gift from him. Enjoy the wife of your youth. Enjoy your labor. This is a gift from God. There's these little specks of light where it bursts through for a minute. But in Christ, you have that back. You get this world not as an enslaving thing, but the way that it was meant. Being in Christ, it secures you from the losses of this world. It secures you from the, the blows that you will take because the hope that you have, where your ultimate hope is, is incorruptible and untouchable. So even if you lose everything in this world, even if you are Job... You're okay because your hope, you were not poured out into those things that can be stripped away. You are poured out into the one thing that cannot be stripped away. And you know why it can't be stripped away? Because it does not depend on you, it depends on Christ. And his work is finished, and he loses none that are his. So you're safe no matter what comes in this life. And this life can be brutal. This life can be absolutely brutal. And I know it has been for many of you here. Well, this is the good news, right? No matter what you've lost here, your ultimate hope need not be shaken because of the work of Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for reorienting us the way things really are, for lifting our eyes above the sun, for reminding us that there is something above and beyond this world, that there is a world to come, a life to come, an age to come, a, a new heavens and a new earth to come, and that that reality changes everything for us here. But I pray that you would help us to stay mindful of this through the eyes of faith. I pray that you would insulate us against the lies of our flesh and the world and the devil that tell us we must find what we need here and now. The, the urgency, the, the seeing the things right in front of us, it feels so tangible, it feels so much more real, and it can be so compelling. Guard us from that, Lord. Help us to see the truth, and give us enough detachment from here to be able to engage it well, to engage this place well. Not that we would be disconnected, but that We are not dependent on it, so that we can use it well for your glory and for the good of those around us. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, we get the privilege this morning of partaking of the Lord's Supper together. This is one of God's means of grace through which he cares for us, and it is one of the things that he gives us to orient our hearts in this way, to orient our hearts to this truth. It reminds us of what has been done to make us citizens of the kingdom, And it keeps us mindful of the kingdom to come. So we're going to sing here in a minute. And as we do, you can receive the elements. Um, This meal is for Christ's church. It's for those who have faith and trust in Jesus and been baptized into his church. So if that's you, I invite you to partake with us. The elements are on black tables, kind of in the middle of the room. Uh, So we normally have clear cups with the wine and the juice and uh, the wine and purple cups with the juice. We were low on clear cups. So there's still a clear cup, but some of them are with the purple cup. So you're gonna have to look closely, all right? So if there is a clear cup, it's wine. If there are two purples, it's juice. I, have, I used to believe you guys can do it. I've got confidence in you. All right, did I explain it right? It's like okay, good. I better check that before I, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so the elements are there, right? So receive those, bring them back to your chair, and then after we sing this next song, I'll come up and we'll receive that supper together and and we'll remember how this uh, keeps us mindful of what we talked about. So go ahead and stand. Let's sing and receive the elements.